Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerz Day, December 28th, 2020. Happy New Year and good riddance. As you guys can hear in the background, there's some knocking going on. They're doing some structural inspections in my apartment or around my apartment right now, and they've been doing it for lo these many days. Jim and I have postponed this recording a number of times. We, we have to get this out the door, so unfortunately, there'll be a... There'll be some sound effects in the background. I think it's a giant raven <laughs> doing doing the uh, doing the knocking. I can't keep shouting nevermore, but oh well, the knock, okay, the knocking cool. still happens. <laughs> <laughs> All right. On the show today, news, listener questions, and do you have what it takes to be a Walt Disney World hostess in nineteen seventy? And in our main segment, Jim and I look back at what happened when John Lennon stayed at Disney's Polynesian Village Resort back in late December of nineteen seventy-four. Let's get started by bringing in the man who tries to act nonchalant, but underneath it all is chalant as heck. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? It's interesting you mentioned chalant, because some people have actually tried to define chalant over the years. They they describe the sensation as being careful, attentive, or concerned, or being irritated and unable to relax, displaying (laughs) anxiety, interest, or enthusiasm. So using it in a sentence, Len, as I waited for my surprise colonoscopy IRS audit, I was decidedly chalant. <laughs> I didn't know you could do both of those things together, but I guess if you want to get the unpleasantness done. There we go. It's the sitting <laughs> upright at the desk. That's the tough part. Get it. <laughs> Mr. Hill, can you explain this deduction of one golden Labrador retriever? Uh, it's a business expense. Uh, put the camera a little higher. It's a business <laughs> expense. I swear. Like that? There we go. <laughs> <laughs> and as long as we're, we're, we're defining things, okay. <laughs> Here we go. I mean, the show is just off the rails already, Jim. <laughs> it's just, it's, oh, well. Okay, we talked about nonchalant. What about non-parels? You know, those little dark yeah, ducks? where are the parels? Okay, yeah. well, that's it exactly. So can, technically, is a parel just a flat blob of chocolate? And if so, what about parallel parking? Is that when you leave your blobs of chocolate at curbside? <laughs> Yeah, so if it's if a non if if non-parel is basically a box of chocolate that says these aren't parels, mm-hmm. what are the are they bigger? It's like I can't believe this isn't butter. Well, what is it? It's not butter. No, but seriously, I'm allergic to some stuff. It's not butter. <laughs> that's right. I, on, on advice of our attorneys, that's all we can say at this point. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, there's a tolerant. It's not butter. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. All right, Jim. Let's do a uh, shout out to subscribers over to Disney Dish. That's Bandcamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers, MJ Holla82, Call Jamie, and Jim T, and longtime subscribers, Philip with the Jeeps, David P2112, I think he's a Rush fan, and Donna Quack. I hope she's a medical professional. Jim, these are the folks pitching a classic reboot titled Peter Pan Vampire Hunter to Disney Plus, in which Captain Hook and Mr. Smee are creatures of the night. The ride almost refurbishes itself, doesn't it? True story. Ooh, you know, Jim. There, Jim. I, 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 so I've, I've been touring. I've been doing touring plane testing in the Magic Kingdom a lot over the last month. Mm-hmm. You know, making sure all the models and everything are correct. Mm-hmm. And I spent a lot of time on Peter Pan, and I'm like, you know what? This needs mm-hmm. vampires. <laughs> <laughs> There was actually, in fact, I followed this script for years. This is a legitimate project that flips the script on the Peter Pan a legend. The idea is that what if you tell the story of Peter Pan, but from the point of view of children have been stolen out of bedroom, you have a disrupt mother, all right, and who comes to investigate it but police captain James Hook. 
Now you're pursuing this horrible being, Peter Pan, who comes in the dead of night and steals children. Oh, maybe Peter Pan is the vampire. Oh, even better. Oh. Okay. Is is someone writing this down? Uh, (laughs) How long does the treatment need to be? Like two pages? The sad thing about it is there's an executive at Disney Plus. Hang on, hang on. Need a pen. Need a pen. I got our film for 2024. (laughs) Hit hit, hit pause on my phone. Hit pause on my phone. There you go. All right, Jim, let's do the uh, the news. Folks, the Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. Jim, every show should begin with a round of self-congratulations. On last week's show, we noted that low occupancy rates at some of Disney World's hotels, and we wondered why Disney wasn't offering more hotel discounts. And then a couple of days later, Disney launched a new discount. And this one is uh, Walt Disney World is offering two additional days of theme park tickets when you buy a non-discounted four-night, three-day room and ticket package at certain Walt Disney World Resort hotels. And that's from January 8th, which is in a couple of weeks, mm-hmm. through September 25th, 2021. So this is basically a nine-month discount, Jim. Woof. What does that uh, What does that tell you? We're heading into a decidedly soft period. Yeah. With everything that's going on with COVID right now, I would imagine there are thousands upon thousands of people who... We're thinking of, of heading down to Orlando that are stomping the brakes. So they, boy, they need to dangle something additional to get those folks to head on down and two additional yeah, I days. Think, I think I think this is the uh, introductory offer here. Uh, wow. Okay. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised to see more stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, Disney announced uh, that Blizzard Beach will be the water park reopening on March 7th, 2021. No word yet on Typhoon Lagoon, but we knew that uh, Disney already said that there was going to be one park opening. We know it's Blizzard Beach. Mm-hmm. That's good. Yeah. All right. Got to start somewhere. Also, uh, Disney's announced that the Taste of Epcot International Flower and Garden Festival will run March 3rd through July 5th, 2021, which is 125 days, the longest international flower and garden festival of all time. Jim, I would expect that food and wine will start again the following week, <laughs> as it did in 2020. Uh, what, do you, what do you think about this? By now, you've been over to Epcot, and you've seen the aircraft carrier that's parked out in World Showcase Lagoon, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it looks it looks like something that uh, should be in one of the Avengers movies. I'm uh, I'm waiting for uh, uh, Nick Fury to uh, to yell at me to get on the damn air, aircraft carrier anytime, any day now. We still have three chunks backstage. Yeah, I think that's the biggest part, though, isn't it? Yeah, though yeah. our buddy BioReconstruct sent us some imagery of when they were testing the arm component as part of the show backstage, and it's like, jeez, this thing, it's big. But again, this was the first time they're doing a projection show of sorts out in, in World Showcase, and they needed large surfaces, but... I'm just going to be intrigued to see this thing when they fire it up as a water feature during the day. That's what I'm thinking. Can you imagine the volume of water that they're going to have to move to produce fountains that hide that? Has anybody broke this to the, the folks at the Riviera? By the way, be, roughly between 10 and 8 at night, you're not going to be able to flush your toilet. I'm, I'm really sorry. <laughs> that's, that's what it, but I mean, the, the, the amount of power that those water pumps. Yeah. Are going to have to consume. I mean, are, we, are we basically telling everyone in the Orlando area, look, between like 11 a.m. And, and, and 9 p.m., if you could just not use air conditioning, that would be great. <laughs> yeah. This thing is going to be throwing water in the air. You know, it's not like Florida needed more humidity. <laughs> 
I admire the ambition, yeah. and let's see, let's see how it goes. But I'm, I'm kind of excited to see it. I mean, at this same point, thing um, same thing here. Yeah, at this point, I, I want to see, I want to see what the what the show looks like. Mm-hmm. So, speaking of food, Jim, um, I was over at uh, the studios last weekend, and I have to share with you the single greatest culinary invention in the history of Disney's Hollywood Studios, and that is the Baseline Tap House Caramel Apple Whiskey Creme Brulee. Wow. This is a, a hockey puck size thing of creme brulee that's $9. Mm-hmm. Or, no, sorry. It's $14. Mm-hmm. And you look at it and you think, I don't know how this can be worth $14. And Jim, then you take a bite of it and you're like, I would buy more of these <laughs> and make this my only meal of the day. <laughs> it is delicious textured creme brulee with caramel on top with a nice little flavor of whiskey in it. And then very tiny diced apples in cinnamon. Mm at the bottom and it is it is exquisitely done the proportions of everything are perfect the textures are fabulous there's a variety of tastes in there i didn't think it was worth it i took one bite and then <laughs> my sister christina and i had to fight over the rest well i was about to say who ended up with a fork in the back of their hand <laughs> <laughs> well this is mine <laughs> the good thing was is that she was she was filming me eating it for instagram so i got to eat all of it on camera <laughs> And, and she couldn't fight me because she was holding the, the, the phone while she was recording it. So, you know, a win's a win. I'm going to take it away. Yeah, but absolutely fabulous. Really, really good. I don't know how long it's going to be there, but if anyone's going over the holidays, yeah, definitely the, uh, the thing to get. Yeah, very cool. All right, Jim, let's move on to a listener questions. Our friend Tony has uh, two questions uh, for you, Jim. Mm-hmm. The first one is, uh, why is Disney discontinued the giant Mickey on the side of the contemporary resort? And Jim, on this one, I had to go back and look to see when the when Mickey Mouse was on mm-hmm. the Contemporary Resort, how long ago did that happen? They discontinued putting the, this giant Mickey-shaped wreath up when they opened the Bay Lake Tower, which again was August of, of 2009. Evidently because now we have the new Bay Lake Tower and mm-hmm. we really need to be thinking of decorating it, the whole resort. Because remember, prior to that, the focus was primarily on decorating the A-frame because you had the two garden wings, so to speak. My problem, though, is that Cheapskate Princess has a photo up on Pinterest that actually shows the walkway in place going over to Bay Lake Tower with the Mickey wreath up. And I'm wondering, was that maybe done one last time in 2008 before they opened the hotel? Oh. By the very name, the Contemporary, they've always struggled to stay on the cutting edge of, of what holiday decorations are thought to be like. And have you ever seen the tree for the first year at the Contemporary where it's just no. basically red plastic ribbon on a giant metal frame? This was in the 70s, so they maybe they were going for a 70s Christmas tree? Even for a 70s Christmas tree, this just pins the needle and in the truly ugly direction. Oh, I love a, a mid-century Christmas tree. Oh, but this could be used to break prisoners at Guantanamo. It just... <laughs> This was just bad. Ooh, I see it. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, huh. So that at least is the way it was explained to me that once the Bay Lake Tower opened up and they had to think, okay, we have to decorate both of these hotels. Sadly, this was a decoration that really only people in the lobby of the contemporary or those riding the monorail got to enjoy. And so it's like, all right, this is what we have to do. The, uh, the second thing that, uh, that Tony asks is, it's more of a show idea. He says he wants to hear about the history of the short takeoff and landing port at Walt Disney You know, World. Tony, you came within inches of getting your Christmas wish. I, I was <laughs> researching earlier this week trying to decide what we should do for the feature, and it turns out 
And to give you some idea of how short-lived the uh, Disney's short takeoff and landing airport next to the Magic Kingdom parking lot was up and running, December 28th, 1972 was the last day planes were allowed to come in. Yeah, so it lasted a little over a year. Yeah. And the planes that landed there were 10, 12 passenger. If that. Lots of Piper Cubs. Yeah. And... One of the reasons I didn't go forward with this story is I still have to chase down. There was a story about why it was so abruptly shut down. That supposedly there was one pilot who really wanted to give his passengers a thrill. So they threw over the the Magic Kingdom and got very, very close to things. Or at least that's the story I've been told. And to shut down in the week between Christmas and New Year's. At Walt yeah. Disney World, that's yeah, that's tough. That's kind of unusual. Yeah, we're going to close on the twenty eighth, middle of the week. No reason. I like I like that the uh, the airport code for this, the IATA code, was DWS, like Disney World short takeoff. That's and, and apparently Eastern had this was like a an Eastern hub for that one year, right? Yeah, yeah, amazing. Tony, I'll I'll make one more run at this and see if we can. Because you know, again, I want to get that story confirmed because that that's I've always heard from. Old time managers, it's like, yeah, that ran until the crazy guy made a flyby of the castle during a a holiday week. (laughs) Oh, yeah. That's why you couldn't do it. Yeah, yeah. that totally makes sense. All right, I get it. Mm -hmm. All right, Jim, our friend Patrick sends in an ad from the year 1970 for a Walt Disney World hostess. So uh, for our listeners here, uh, I want you to think of this as an ad and you tell us whether you qualify. Ready? Disney World hostess, you're invited to explore exciting career opportunities on a part or full-time basis. The world's largest and most exciting vacation complex opening in October 1971 is selecting an elite core of girls now for preview center hostesses. More hostesses will be needed later as the opening draws near. Special hostess training and sharp modern costumes help you present the magic of this soon-to-be-opened vacation kingdom of the world with style and congeniality. All right, so right, uh, right off the top, Jim, I'm thinking that this is a uh, this is a Sandra Bullock ad right here, Miss Congeniality. <laughs> yes, yes. Opportunities are open for full time careers as well as part time employment. These part time positions are ideal for college students. Hostesses earn good pay and enjoy a generous benefit program. If you meet the following qualifications, Jim, please apply in person. And there are six qualifications. Are you ready? Okay. First of all, you must be personable and like to work with people. I mean, that's you and me right there. Okay. Right? Uh, Two, must be at least 18 years old. So we're both still good there. Mm -hmm. Three, attractive, neat, and well-groomed. Well, there we go. Hello. Okay, let's go (laughs) on. Enthusiastic, natural personality. Uh, We're enthusiastic. Okay. Okay. Intelligent, foreign languages a plus. Does pig Latin apply? (laughs) I mean, three out of five ain't bad. Mm And then finally, flexible work schedule must furnish your own transportation. I can basically walk oh. to the Magic Kingdom from where I live in, in celebration. Mm-hmm. So uh, it says to apply in person from Interstate 4, drive north on Highway 535. Interview office is located directly north of Stuckey's and is open from 8 to 5, Monday through Friday. Now I want to know where that Stuckey's was. Just to fill in a little more information here, Len, I am holding a copy of the Hyperion Historical Alliance Annual for 2020. And there is a story in this year's issue about the preview center at Walt Disney World when they brought these girls in. So just to sort of paraphrase here, the interviews for the preview center, for the staff, the the, the very ad that Len's reading here, they were held October 30th through November 2nd, 1969. 
Over 400 women were interviewed for these positions. They narrowed it down to a series of candidates, 60, and then further winnowed it down to 29. And in the end, 14 women were chosen to serve as hostesses at the center. And believe it or not, Len, I have their names. We have a Sharon Anderson, a Cheryl uh, Roberts, a Barbara Allen, a Susan Woods, a Diane Laporte, a Judy Ivey, a Joanne Sanders, a Behester Green, Susan Geisler, Inez Lightsley, a Deborah Dane, Helen Chinoweth, uh, Lorraine Dinopoli, and finally, Marsha Cooper. And these young ladies worked in a $500,000 facility that Disney built, the, the preview center, and mm-hmm. uh, soft open January 10th, 1970. 50 years ago wow. this year. I also have to tell you that I'm looking at a, a photo of the staff together, and I don't think you and I could have pulled off the outfit. <laughs> my, 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 hips, uh, my hips don't lie, is that what you're saying? It consisted of a persimmon-colored top, a white waistband, and a dark blue skirt. Yeah, persimmon is not my color. Other than that, I could have, I probably could have worked with something there. I'm more of a deep winter myself, so... <laughs> But yeah, if you want to learn more about the Preview Center and the young ladies that work there, again, the Hyperion Historical Alliance Annual for 2020. Seek that out, folks. You can find it on Amazon or that sort of thing. But fascinating place to work. And again, the weird thing is, open from January of 1970 and then locked up tight October 1st, 1971. Wow. All right. So uh, so you'll put the um, you'll put the ad itself in the show notes. We will. So see, we right? will. Yep. Awesome. And that's available at uh, jimhillmedia.com, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Awesome. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim and I talk about why monorail drivers at Walt Disney World still talk about what John Lennon and his son Julian did back in December of 1974. We'll be right back. All right, Jim, you mentioned John Lennon and his son Julian. Mm-hmm. So I need, to, I need to tell you a story about Julian Lennon. Okay. When I lived in Greensboro... Mm-hmm. The gentleman behind us, who lived behind us, was a jazz musician who worked with uh, Julian Lennon on Valat, the album, oh. and had nothing but nice things to say about the man himself, mm-hmm. but said that the record company never paid him mm-hmm. for the work. So I, I actually looked it up. He's actually he's actually listed as a performer on the on the album, mm-hmm. but said that uh, Julian, uh, when when he was uh, let's say uh, in a non sober state, mm-hmm. he would complain that Julian Lennon owned owed him half a million dollars in royalties. <laughs> So every time, uh, every time Laurel and I would hear Julian Lennon on the radio, it would be like, damn you, Julian Lennon. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's true or not. Anyway, every, every time we hear Valat, right? It's okay. like, oh, Julian Lennon. Yeah, anyway. Okay. Again, we, we mentioned our friend of the show, Bio Reconstruct, a few minutes ago. And just recently, they posted some photos. They did a flyover of... The poly? Right, showing the construction with the, uh, of the uh, Great Ceremonial House. Right? Yeah, and what they've done to the monorail station in front of the Great Ceremonial House, which is basically flatten it. They're building a brand new take on the facility as they're also changing out some of the, the structural timbers on the Ceremonial House. I guess given the work that's being done on the monorail station there, this is as good a time as any to look back on December of 1974, which was John when John Lennon stayed at the Poly. Mm. There are cast members even today who talk about how John and his then 11-year-old son, Julian, who c- couldn't possibly owe anybody a half a million dollars. He's only 11. Probably it's it's his management company. There we go. So let me, let me just say, the, the thing that amazes me about the Polynesian, even today, mm-hmm. is that you can go there and find people who were working 
in 1971. Oh, yeah. Like the last time I needed my luggage moved, mm-hmm. the bellhop who came in to move my luggage, you know, we get to talk and everything, had literally been there since 1971. Mm-hmm. Like, would you start when you were 12? Like, were child labor laws different back then? <laughs> what? <laughs> Also gives you some idea of when Disney World actually opened up. I can remember there's the famous story about Dick Nooners finishing the lawn in front of the contemporary, yelling yeah. at the people laying sod, green side up. <laughs> if you had a pulse, you had a job at Walt Disney World. So you know, so I would imagine they were ten year olds. Like, Hi, you're Revelman. It's like what? You know? <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> But as you said, there are, in fact, cast members who have worked there since the, the early 70s. In fact, they still talk about how Lennon and his son Julian, when they stayed at the poly, again, they would go outside, they'd wait for the monorail to come around. In fact, they had befriended a specific cast member who we'll talk about in a few minutes and climb into the front cab of the monorail and they'd spend an hour in that compartment with this particular cast member, endlessly making loops from the Poly to the Magic Kingdom, the Contemporary, to the TCC over and over again. And really, the reason they were doing that, Len, is as soon as they were out of sight of Walt Disney World managers, these same cast members would allow John and Julian to slip behind the control council and actually drive the monorail. Whom, <laughs> whom among us hasn't driven the monorail at some point, Jim? Anyway, there's another reason, of course, that has to do with why the folks at the Poly remember John Lennon, because it was at the Poly that John supposedly was the last of the members of the Beatles to sign the agreement that then officially dissolved the Beatles. And right. the paperwork arrived at the front desk, and you know the bellman ran it down to John's room, and he actually had to tip the guy to end his career with the Beatles, which I thought was interesting. But the history of the Beatles and Disney are weirdly intertwined as far back as the early 1960s. And really? Yeah. Some of that comes, of course, on the heels of the fact that in November 63, JFK gets assassinated, country plunges right. into mourning. And this period of mourning basically holds Len till February of 64, which is when oh, yeah. the Beatles flew into what had previously been known as Idlewild Airport. In fact, that, JFK. See, but yeah. that's the thing, Len. They changed the name from Idlewild to JFK. It was a month and two days after Kennedy had been assassinated. Yeah. And if you think about it, if we, we talked about doing this today, that'd be 18 months, two years of meetings and focus groups. And Yeah, it wouldn't be anything. So it's funny, when, um, when the TWA Hotel reopened, I guess it was 2018, mm-hmm. at the JFK airport, it's, uh, it's Terminal 5. It's the, basically connected to the JetBlue Terminal. They actually brought in the Beatles, like Beatles... As far as I know, it was the real Beatles, right? I mean, let's face it. <laughs> they brought in the Beatles to reenact. Oh, no. Coming. And uh, so it was It was full of press people. And Laurel and I had actually booked a room there that night because mm-hmm. we liked the decor and everything. But people lost their minds. Mm. There's a video of it online. Oh. You look at the, you know, the Beatles TBA Hotel 2018 or whatever. People lost their minds over it. They got out, they sang, right? They, they did songs and everything. It was, it was fantastic. Anyway. Got to seek this out. So I've actually seen the Beatles at JFK. So That's killer. That is killer. <laughs> okay. And they, in their 1960s outfit, uh, all of, the, um, all of the, the servers were wearing 1960s TWA flight attendant <sighs> outfits. I mean, they, it was, it was, everyone was, was dressed in period. It was fantastic. That's killer. No, I got to get chased down this village. All right. Anyway, Disney and the Beatles are another moment that they're intertwined. We jump ahead to August of 1964, where in one two-week period, the Beatles' first movie, A Hard Day's Night, arrives in theaters. And then in the same window of time, Disney's smash hit movie musical, Mary Poppins, 
premieres and talk about timing with the British invasion. Well, no, stuff. that's it exactly. All right, and <gasps> okay. Anyway, we jump ahead a full year. Uh, Hard Day's Night is followed by, of course, Help, which hits theaters in, in August of '65. And this exact same month, Brian Epstein, the manager of the Beatles, meets uh-huh. with Walt Disney and proposes that John, Paul, George, and Ringo work with Walt on some project. Okay. And Walt is intrigued by this. He mentions that, you know, well, Disney Animation Studios are working on an animated version of Roger Kipling's Jungle Book and the, this quartet of vultures that befriend Mowgli in the final act, and maybe the Beatles could voice those characters. And so both Epstein and Disney go away from this meeting exciting. Walt, because think about it, if the Beatles actually voice the characters, and or even better, contribute a song or two to the score of the film, even Walt Disney at this point is aware of how big the Beatles are and what this could mean to his film. Sure. Epstein, on the other hand, he felt the key to the Beatles being a a lasting success rather than some flash in the pan was to make Mm -hmm. sure that they made deliberate efforts to broaden their fan base beyond screaming teenage girls. This is actually why in 63, Brian had signed with King's Features to build a Saturday morning cartoon around the Fab Four. This animated series, which (laughs) had the sort of you know, right on the nose title, The Beatles, debuts on ABC on September 25th, 1965, and John Lennon hates the show. Oh, I'm sure, yeah. So much so that when Brian Epstein meets with the Beatles that very same month to discuss this whole voicing the vultures in Disney's animated version of The Jungle Book, this is what John reportedly said to Brian. There's no way the Beatles are going to sing for Mickey and Mouse. You can tell Walt Disney to off, tell him to get Elvis off his fat arse. He's making crap movies. So he's ambivalent is what I'm, what I'm getting at. He's, he could go either way. <laughs> He'll have to get back to you. Uh, and in fact, poor Brian has to get back to Walt and, and make up some sort of excuse about, well, the Beatles are unavailable and I'm really sorry I misspoke myself. And But meanwhile, the story team has already changed the Vulture characters. They've given them mop-top haircuts and they've rewritten the dialogue so they're supposed to sound like they're from Liverpool. So what they do is they arrange for sound-alikes. And, uh, for example, these Vultures, you never hear, hear in the movie, but they actually have names. They are Buzzy, Dizzy, Ziggy, and Flaps. So Flaps is voiced by Chad Stewart of Jared and Jeremy fame. By the way, though, uh, Mr. Stewart literally just passed away yesterday at the age of oh. 79. But uh, Chad and Jeremy were another group from the UK that, that became popular in the US during the British invasion. And Dizzy was voiced by uh, Lord Tim Hudson, who was a DJ in the LA market, hugely popular, also had come over a part of the British invasion. John Favreau is out doing publicity for his photorealistic version of Jungle Book in April of 2016. And yep. he actually talked about how, at one point, he tried to get the two surviving members of the Beatles, Sir Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr, to come voice the Vultures in his redo. That's some deep, deep research right there, that Favreau knew that uh, the story. Wow, that's fantastic. As he's doing the press conference, he laments, it's like, we don't have the Beatle Vultures. I, I did talk about trying to get Paul and Ringo into the film because they wanted the Beatles in the original, but I couldn't get them. We came to the idea too late. But maybe if there's a sequel, and by the way, there is in fact a Jungle Book sequel in development for Disney right. Studios. So uh, supposedly headed to Disney Plus. So we may yet to get to hear Paul and Ringo as vultures yet. We got to give Ringo credit. Ringo works constantly. Oh yeah, no, 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 no. Ringo is just one of those guys where it's like I want to make sure the checks keep coming. Well, he he I mean, he tours with the uh, the his Ringo Star All Star Band. I mean, he's doing before the pandemic. I mean, hundreds of dates a year. He, the dude enjoys the music. And I was reading something about him. 
mm-hmm. about how like so the the all star band sort of rotates, right? It's sort of you know people come in and out of it. Mm-hmm. And the number of people that have done it, you know, is, is dozens, if not in the hundreds. But everyone had nothing but good things to say about working with Ringo Starr. That he shows up, he expects everybody to be, to be professional. If you're a guest musician, you get to play, you know, two or three of your hits, mm-hmm. and Ringo will support you on it. So you know, everyone gets a little bit of promotion. But everyone, everyone is supposed to give up their ego when they're in the uh, the All Star Band. Yeah, it was just he was. Well, no, no. Like, that, in fact, I've heard the very same thing. Sometimes it's other members of the All Stars who will know of a performer who's having money issues or down on the luck or that sort of thing, and it's like, hey, can we bring him in for the next tour? And it's employees of older performers. And gives them that little bit more time in the spotlight. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I've actually heard the same thing. That's fantastic. All right. Anyway, getting back to John Lennon. Now, just just to be clear here, John Lennon did not hate all animation. What he actually got to see work in progress footage of from Yellow Submarine in late '67. Lennon was so taken by the look and the style of the animated feature that he insisted that the Beatles shoot a live-action cameo, and that they find time in January of, of 68 to do that. Uh, up until that point, they were just sort of like, yeah, do whatever you want with it, but it, no, we want to be part of this. And speaking of Yellow Submarine, I want to remind folks that August of 2009, Walt Disney Pictures announced that they would be collaborating with Robert Zemeckis on a remake of Yellow Submarine. It was going to be done in CG, performance capture project, Unfortunately, the 2009 holiday season was when the Jim Carrey version of A Christmas Herald came out, didn't do the business that Disney expected. They still kept going with Yellow Submarine. They went so far as to actually hire uh, performers. The comedian Peter Serafinowitz, uh, he was going to voice Paul McCartney. And uh, Dean Lennox Kelly was going to voice John Lennon. Carrie Ellis of Princess Bride fame was going to voice George Harrison. And finally, Adam Campbell was going to voice Ringo. <laughs> and they even hired a California-based Beatle tribute band, the Fab Four. In fact, man, I wonder if those are the guys they brought in to, to, for the reopening of the the Pan Am building. Maybe so. But anyway, original plan was Yellow Submarine was going to be completed in time to have its premiere in the UK, just as the Olympic Games were being held in London in the summer of 2012. But Image Movers Digital released Mars Needs Bombs, and that was such a big bomb. Disney just at that point abandoned the idea entirely of doing a Yellow Submarine remake. Oh. It's got an, an A-team bunch of performers associated with it, Joan Cusack. It just it was one of these things, the wrong film with the wrong time. In fact, I was on the phone with Simon Wells the day the movie was crashing and burning. He did the screenplay, right? Well, he, he directed it. And he also, yes, he, oh. he worked on the script. Okay. But as he and I were on the phone talking, it's the day that the tsunami hits Japan uh, Both of us have televisions on in the background as we're doing this interview about Mars Needs Bomb. And Simon's like, look, I just had a film that bombed at the box office. This, in comparison to what's going on over there, you know, these people have lost their homes, their lives. It's like my animated film didn't connect with people. Big deal. All right. So a corporation yeah, exactly. loses yeah. money. By the way, back to Robert Zemeckis, December of 2012, when asked about Yellow Submarine basically being shut down, it's like, well, look, it would have been great to bring the Beatles back to life, but it's probably better not to make Yellow, remake Yellow Submarine. I mean, you're always behind the eight ball when you're making a remake. and 
<laughs> As the Oracle foretold, Robert Smekis. Th- that's right. You know, just was it just two weeks ago that they they talked about how he's remaking Pinocchio with Tom Hanks playing Geppetto, yeah. and it's like, what is that about big people who make mistakes in the past? Lend something about condemned to repeat them. I'm, I'm okay. All right. Yeah. Back to John Lennon. Again, John, after he and Yoko moved to New York City in 71, he deliberately steps out of the spotlight, and he largely concentrates on his family and his private life. He writes a a few songs, records a couple of recordings in those first few years in New York. In fact, the very last time he performs on stage, Len, is at Madison Square Garden. He, He joins Elton John on stage in November of 74 and performs Whatever Gets You Through the Night. This is just a couple of weeks before John takes Julian down to Disney World for her father's son excursion. And by this point, John seems to have softened his stance on Walt F. and Disney. But having a kid <laughs> will do that to you? Yeah, yes, it will. All, All right. right. So anyway, let's finally get to that driving the monorail story. So as cast member Hal East recalls, I met John Lennon at Disney World while working as a monorail operator. He, Julian, and May Pang rode in the front of the monorail on two different occasions with me. I allowed him and Julian to operate the train. The second day, John came out to the station and actually asked if I was working. He and Julian waited until I arrived in the train and then rode around with me and drove the train. Uh, May Pang took a lot of pictures that day. And as they left the train that day, John asked, would you like to take some pictures? And he actually waited till I, I retrieved a camera. And so they have this great eight by 10 of oh, the nice. two of them together. And May Peng, who started off as John's personal assistant and production coordinator, and then be- became something more after John and Yoko separated in seven, uh, 73, had a really mm-hmm. fun story about what happened when she and the Lennons were staying at the Polynesian uh, Village Resort. So... She talks about riding the Disney World monorail back to our hotel. I heard a father say to his son that he heard a beetle was visiting. And the kid asked, which beetle? And the father said, George Harrison. And it may burst out laughing. George Harrison. (laughs) That would have have been my third choice, (laughs) my third guess. All right. So John leads over to ask why. And May explains that we all start laughing so hard that the father turns around and suddenly realizes which beetle was at the park that day and, and why we were laughing. And John then says... It's okay. We all look alike. <laughs> all the British people look alike. As John, Julian, and May are staying at the Poly, the lender reportedly signs the agreement that officially dissolves the Beatles. And the group had unofficially disbanded in September of 69 after they finished on working on Abbey Road. And, mm-hmm. and everything was kind of kept in abeyance because, you know, there was kind of a hope that maybe John, Paul, George, and Ringo would settle their creative differences and then the Beatles could move forward and continue to great music. Make, In fact... You know, you may remember there was a running gag on the first season of Saturday Night Live when Lauren Michaels would hold up a check. I was going to mention that because uh, the story is that uh, McCartney and Lennon were both in New York. Yes! When, and they saw that one night and they called each other and they tried to get there but figured they couldn't get there in time taking a cab. Could you imagine? Just show up at 30 Rock and it's like, hi, we're here. Yeah. yeah Lauren, Lauren called us. <laughs> so clearly folks are moving on. I mean, for example, Paul McCartney launches Wings into 771. Okay. But but from what I understand is none of the Beatles thought that they were broken up forever. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I don't know if you saw the the, the footage of Peter Jackson. Well, that that's where I was going with yeah, this, right? So, yeah. so go ahead. Go ahead. Talk about the Peter Jackson thing because I just watched it the other... Today. It's not a teaser. It's like a five-minute-long montage of footage of, yeah. 
of them working. And there's this thing called The Beatles Get Back, which will be out in theaters in September of 2021. But it's like, I guess it's 56 hours of footage of them working on, I want to say, Abbey Road. And you just get to see how loose and, I mean, they were still friendly. There were still some creative tensions, but... So the so the interesting thing, a couple of interesting things about that one. Mm. Did you see who the production company is that is paying for the Beatles Get Back? Is, is it Apple? The distribution is by the Walt Disney Studios. Oh, oh. <laughs> yeah, they acquired the rights in uh, in March of 2020. But did you see why Peter Jackson wanted to do it? Because basically, he said mm. that the uh, the original movie, which was Let It Be, right, mm-hmm. which documents the, yep. was so negative. Mm-hmm that he didn't believe mm-hmm. that that was the actual tone of the conversations at that time. Mm-hmm. So he goes back and starts looking at footage and he's talking to Ringo mm-hmm. and to, to Paul and they're like, that movie was way too negative. Mm-hmm. It's not the way it happened. They took all the bad parts out for drama, mm-hmm. right? But we actually were getting along and none of us thought the Beatles were broken up forever. So he's basically doing this as a way to correct the historical oh, record. Oh, that's great. That's great. Yeah. Did you see that just yesterday, MGM put word out that they're setting a committee up to explore the idea of selling off the studio and its film library? No. Yeah, the assumption was, so who is going to buy this? And basically, <laughs> you know, it's, it's either Disney. It reminds me of when Howard Hughes started buying up casinos in Vegas. He basically just goes down one end of the strip and then back up the other end of the strip. To, <laughs> like, I'll take that one and that one. Well, and no, that it's, one, it's, that it's the old baseball cards mentality. Need it, need it, got yeah. it, need it, need it. Right now, that with MGM yeah. uh, supposedly putting itself up to bid, and it, it, it's either Disney, Netflix, or Apple. Yeah, those are your three choices, right? Yeah, yeah. and just going to be interesting to see how that settles out. You got to wonder. You got to wonder if at some point where the Justice Department starts looking at the amount of film libraries that Disney's collecting. Yeah, I know. And figures antitrust. And I get that, but Disney's argument. We've been through an interesting four years here, you know, in regard yeah. to the Justice Department. And there, there were some initial conversations about should something be done about Disney acquiring Fox and what that's going to do to the media landscape. And Disney's yeah. pushback was the effect of, look, if you're talking about the film library, do you realize how much of Fox's stuff is black and white, which, of course, the kids won't watch? Not only that, but con- content is being produced all the time, right? They, they can say, you know, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah I, I'm not saying that it would be successful, but you you got to wonder no, no, no. if the acquisition of something like MGM would be... That's kind of a tipping point moment. Yeah. How yeah. much is too much, so... Anyway, all right. Back, okay, so late late December 1974. There we go. All right, so it's been five more than five years at this point since the group has done anything of size. Meanwhile, Beatles recordings continue to sell. That's supposedly why this finally had to be done to, to dissolve Apple Corps. Which, by the way, I only just found during the the research of the show that led the reason they called it Apple Corps is that it was the pun they they loved the idea. Yeah, I, I, that's what I figured. It was John Lennon just uh, and, and Paul deciding that that's funny. that is. And, that, but I, again, I'd never put that together. But now it's time finally to formally dissolve the Beatles. So uh, and by this point, John and George and Ringo have already signed the document. So. As the story goes, this enormous contract uh, gets delivered to the front desk at the Poly. Uh, eventually, Bellman takes it up to the room where John's staying, and he, he actually has to tip the guy to end his career as a Beatle. But wow. signs it and then slips it into the, the equally large envelope to send it back to the lawyers. And he and Julian walk down to the front desk. And So hold on. So that means that the return envelope mm-hmm. that dissolved the Beatles has a Walt Disney World postmark it on it. It does. It does. All right. All right. But 
walks down to the front desk, you know, hands it off to the concierge. And then it just sort of like, John's a little depressed and it's like, oh, let's go do something fun. And so they, they go upstairs and this is when they wait for Hallie's for their second ride. You know, they just, is Hal working today? And they stand there at, <laughs> at the end and wait till the monorail. Like something that all of us would do. You know, like, <laughs> you know and it just, you know, just think about it. Who needs a yellow submarine when you got monorail coral? But again, you know, they, they, Hal pulls into the station, sees them, pops open the door and the, you know, the two of them climb inside and they drive off for the afternoon and drive the monorail when nobody's looking. And given the way John Lennon's story ended 40 years ago this month, this is how I prefer to remember the man. As a good dad, somebody who had an entire luxury hotel at his disposal and had a theme park full of rides, shows, and attractions across the water. And what does he do? He climbs into the the monorail because Julian likes to pretend he's driving the train. You know, and again, it's a it's yeah. it's a monorail. You know, where's it going to go? In the end, he, in the end, he just wants to have fun with his family. Yeah, you yeah. Know, it's- According to the date on the contract, this all went down December 29th, nineteen seventy four. Wow! So tomorrow. Yep. There we go. Ah, uh, wow! How about that? Yeah. It's funny, the, uh, I, I like the Beatles a lot. Mm-hmm. Probably my second favorite group behind, you know, Van Halen. Mm-hmm. And so Little and I were, were, were talking, you know, one day recently about how many songs a group has to do mm-hmm. to be considered like a superstar group. Like, like how many songs would have to be in regular rotation on, you know, a streaming service like Spotify or uh, whatever, or on the radio to be considered a super group, mm-hmm. right? And then we started naming all of the songs that we hear from the Beatles on the radio on a regular basis. Like, like good songs that you wouldn't turn mm-hmm. off. And we came up with it between 25 and 30, which is an astronomical number of, of songs from one group that you would, if you heard on the radio, you would, or on streaming, you would not turn off. I mean, and, I, and so for comparison, you know, Van Halen, my favorite group, there are, there are fewer songs than that, mm-hmm. right? And it's just, it's, it's number one, the output that they have, you know, the number of songs oh, yeah. that they have that we all love, mm-hmm. right? I mean, even, even like Hannah, who is, you know, 22, mm-hmm does not like as many Beatles songs as I do, but, but certainly likes quite a few of them. And she was born almost 20 years after John Lennon died. Mm-hmm. Right? She's never, she barely knows the Beatles. The other thing that's remarkable about the Beatles is how they changed as the 60s progressed. No, no. In fact, it's so interesting you say that because that's actually one of the reasons John hated the animated series because it was, you know, the thing that ran on ABC because it it locked them into the look from when they got right. off the plane at JFK and they had the they yeah. had the mop top and they were in the, the gray suits. And it's just, by even in the two years, you know, that it took from when they – Brian Epstein signed the deal to when, you know, the, the show began airing in the September of yeah, 65. Yeah. They changed their look. They changed, you know, who they were. And it, it, yeah. was, it was maddening for John. It's like, that's a time capsule of who I'm not an, anymore. And that was one of the issues he had with it. But but again, you, know, you, you were just talking about how many songs does it take to be considered a timeless rock group. And, and think about it. They just finished working on Abbey Road. I, I'm just looking at the, the song list for Abbey Road. And on this one album, you have Come Together, Maxwell Silverhammer, Octopus's Garden, Here Comes the Sun, and Carry That Weight. I mean, that's yeah. five great Beatles songs on one album. Yeah, Here Comes the Sun is like in my top three. Of Beatles songs. Yeah. yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. I was on a train ride. Again, we're just digressing. I was on a train ride, mm-hmm. I think to Pittsburgh from New York mm-hmm. last year. And they decided to, you know, like they, they periodically reissue Beatles albums or they come out with new material. So Spotify had this playlist of every take 
of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. No. Like all like 64 versions or whatever. And I listened to them all in order. And it's remarkable <sighs> to hear how the song progressed from take to take. I loved it. It's so interesting you say that because of the montage. And again, I, I highly recommend folks see, seek out this teaser for the Peter Jackson Beatles Get Back. Because they, they, you get to watch them actually, they're recording a song and they'll stop like 30 seconds in. No, it should be faster. Yeah, I saw, it's from the montage, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. just you know, the whole notion of that even they were, all right, faster, slower, you know, the, do, should you come in? It's fascinating to watch them work. And they are such animals of how they were brought but from again, when when you were were talking about you know Ringo and his All Star Band and and helping out musicians who are out of work or down in the luck or that sort of thing, bringing them into the tour or or for that matter, I just I love John Lennon bonding with a Disney. Well, I, I mean, I just love the notion of him going up. He's just a regular guy, yeah. I mean, they're just kids from Liverpool at the end, yeah. Right? I but mean, I just I love the notion of him walking out to the Poly Monorail station. Is Hal working today? <laughs> If, if not, Mr. Lennon, we will bring him here for you. There we go. Exactly. So, yeah. uh, oh, fantastic story. Yeah, well, we're glad to share it. And again, I know it's been a tough year for everybody, folks. So here's hoping 2021 is this full of, of the, these sorts of stories. Yeah, better stories. That's great. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the Disney Dish show today. Please head on over to DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes including new in-park audio and a special series we're doing on Epcot storytelling. On next week's show, Jim and I discuss what's happening in Disney's theme parks in 2021. You can find more of Jim at jimhillmedia.com and more of me, Len, at touringplans.com. We are produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who will be defending his ham-throwing championship at the Great Amana Ham Put, <laughs> sponsored by the Amana Meat Shop as part of the 2021 Winterfest Games. On Saturday, January 23rd, 2021, in beautiful downtown Amana, Iowa. While Aaron's doing that, please go into iTunes and rate our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.